Let's go to John chapter 20. All four of the, the gospels, the, what you could say, the, the ancient biographies, type of biography of Jesus, who, who he is, what he did, said, his life, ministry, etc. They're all recorded um, in four different gospels in the New Testament. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, and then there's John. And they were all there. They're all witnesses or were certainly within proximity to the eyewitnesses, and they recorded these events. It's packed full of history. It's packed full of uh, theology, not just the data, but, but the meaning of it so that we can engage with it and, and actually uh, participate in this life that Jesus has invited us into. And so this is John's uh, take, his perspective, and some of his insights on the resurrection of Jesus. So here we go. John chapter 20, we're going to read 10 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That always amuses me. Just had to include that. Verse five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths, the burial cloths, lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. It's a lot of detail. Verse eight, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, presumably the disciple who recorded these events, John. They all arrived at an empty tomb and began processing. And were invited into the moment. Peter, it would seem, didn't quite know what to make of the situation. He just doesn't say anything about his response. Uh, the other disciple, let's just call him John, he saw what Peter saw, presumably Mary as well, and it said that he saw and believed. He saw and believed because 
because they didn't quite understand what the scriptures had already foretold. Jesus himself had spoken very plainly about what was to happen, that he was to suffer, die, and be buried in three days, come back from the dead. But it took John actually seeing the empty tomb to believe, and believe he did. Mary, um, Mary will come back to. Mary had her own experience of the empty tomb. I want to talk about history and hope this morning. History and hope. Because we're engaging with history, the resurrection itself, or let's just say the alleged resurrection for now. It's a historical event, highly debated, controversial, but history nonetheless. And then, of course, the implications of the event. The implications of the resurrection, hope. And I would say right up front that hope without history is not really hope at all, at least not in the biblical sense. It's more of a wish fulfillment. It's I wish it were true. But without history, it's really nothing more than that. So I want to talk about history and hope. And I want to, at the outset, I want to engage with the head. I know some of us in here are like, look, I, I just, I don't need to be convinced. I'm like John. I'm, I'm just down. Doesn't take a lot. Grew up in it. Love it. Um, some of us need a little bit more than that. So I want to, I want to engage with your, your head a little bit. And then I want to, I want to engage with your heart. Um, now some of you... You may have actually researched the historicity of the resurrection. Have you ever done that? Have you read any books? I mean, there, there are tomes written about the, the, the historicity of the resurrection. I mean, allegedly, it was an event in history, a long time ago, to be sure, but, but something that actually happened. And there's been all sorts of debate about it. Did it happen does a rational thinking person have any business actually believing it happened? What can we say about that? Some of you, perhaps you've maybe heard something like this, but you've never actually bothered to do the research. Um, it's possible that at least a few of you in here have maybe even like written books on it. And so let me offer to you a little bit of historical evidence for the resurrection. Bear with me. I want to talk to your head for a moment. So seven, seven points that I believe, and you'll have to fact check this yourself, that I believe that virtually all scholars, from the most liberal to the most conservative, seven points that virtually all historical scholars agree upon when it comes to, about, when it comes to the actual historicity of the resurrection event. And here they are. Number one, Jesus was a real person. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, like, what is that? Okay, fine. What does that have to do with anything? Have you ever met someone and had a conversation, and they said, I don't, no, I don't, I don't believe he ever even actually exists. I believe that he was a fictional character and a fictional story. I've met, I've met that person more than once. And I don't mean to sound rude or, or arrogant, um, but it's, it's a little, little crazy. Um, I mean, these days, the, that is, is a rarely attested fact, at least in terms of historical events. Jesus was a real person. 
the annals of Tacitus, the antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, the Roman historian, the Babylonian Talmud, the Sanhedrin tractate. These are all historical, ancient historical texts that all speak to the reality of a rabbi, a first century Jewish rabbi named Jesus. He was a real person. He lived. He existed. Point number one. Number two, Jesus was condemned to die by the Romans. According to multiple extra-biblical sources, Jesus was condemned to die for specific reasons, said that he had attempted to lead Israel away from God. This is what his opponents would uh, admit to. He attempted to lead people away from God through miracle and miraculous deeds. His enemies attributed his works to the devil as acts of sorcery. He was then condemned to die for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Jesus was handed over to Pontius Pilate by the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem and crucified. Number three, Jesus was executed by crucifixion. Jesus' death was a well-known fact throughout the ancient world. Historians and politicians from the first century spoke of the events that happened in Jerusalem. As the liberal Jewish rabbi Samuel Samdel pointed out, quote, certain bare facts are historically not to be doubted. Jesus he says, who emerged into public notice in Galilee when Herod Antipas was its tetrarch or governor, was a real person, the leader of a real movement. He had followers called disciples. The claim was made either by him or for him that he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He journeyed from Galilee to Jerusalem, possibly in the year 29 or 30 AD, and there he was executed crucified by the Romans as a political rebel. I was invited to participate in a debate. This was a number of years ago. Some of you may have actually found this on YouTube. (laughs) Here's what you don't ever, ever want to happen in your life. Be invited slash tricked to engage in a public debate with a Muslim scholar as to the historicity of the death and resurrection of Jesus and then put it on YouTube for the world to see. So I did that. That's out there. (laughs) Um, What I discovered that, have any of you ever heard of the swoon theory? This idea that, in fact, Jesus, of course we know he's a real person. Of course we know that, that he was some kind of religious leader in the first century Palestinian area. And, and we know that the Romans at least attempted to crucify him, but the theory apparently is that he didn't actually die. And there's certain sects within Islam that argue that, well, no, he didn't, he didn't actually die, but he just passed out. He swooned and then was put in a tomb, and then a few days later he, he resuscitated. And then as the theory goes, he somehow made his way off to, to India and is now buried uh, in Kashmir. And you can go, go verify it yourself. Um, it's, it's, it's just not true. 
It's just, it, you, can, you can verifiably uh, find out for yourself it's not true. Um, but it's out there. It's a theory. Historically, it doesn't hold water. Jesus definitely was crucified and died. Number four, Jesus was buried in a tomb after his death. While some people argue that this is contestable, uh, they are in the scholarly minority. Most scholars see the multiple sources and witnesses from the first century as proof of a factual claim. Jesus received an honorable burial even though he suffered a dishonorable death. I love what liberal New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson says when he argues from the evidence that the burial of Jesus in a tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. It's historically fact. At least that is the scholarly consensus. Number five, Jesus' tomb was found empty on the Sunday following his death. Now, this does not prove, historically or otherwise, that Jesus, in fact, came back from the dead, but most historians, uh, hostile or sympathetic, will concede the fact that, no, the tomb was absolutely empty. Somehow, it was empty. Jewish, Roman, and Christian sources all agreed that the tomb of Jesus was in fact empty. The location of the body and why it did not remain there is up for debate. But the empty tomb is not. D.H. Van Dalen points out, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. He says those who deny it on the basis, those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumption. And that, that might sting a little. Because you might seriously doubt the fact that the tomb was ever even empty in the first place. You might think, well, no, that's, that's crazy. I, I get that he was real. I get that he lived. I get that he died. I get that he was crucified. And I get that he was even put in the tomb. But you're telling me that somehow he disappeared after the third day? You're telling me, well, if you want to just approach it from as uh, a virtually objective as a perspective as possible, I would say yes. That, and look at, again, there's much fact checking to be done. But the point I'm simply trying to make at the outset here is that the tomb was empty. Christian, non-Christians alike will concede to that fact that as a matter of history, somehow the body disappeared. Two more, number six. Jesus' followers claimed to see him alive. The disciples of Jesus believed that he was raised from the dead and appeared to them on many occasions. Besides the eyewitness testimony contained in Scripture, is there other evidence for this? That the disciples actually believed and claimed to have seen Jesus alive. Two examples. Number one. Suetonius, a Roman official and historian, recorded 
the expulsion of Jews, Jewish believers from Rome in around 48 AD because of controversy erupting over a certain Crestus. Something happened. Like events, subsequent events took place that make it very, very hard to explain away any other reason for these events other than the fact that the, 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 the disciples of Jesus, they had actually seen Jesus alive. Certain things began to transpire that there was no other explanation for. Another example, in a letter to the emperor Trajan around the year 110 AD, within a couple of generations, Pliny the Younger, the imperial governor of what is now known as modern-day Turkey, reported that Christians gathered on Sunday to pray to Jesus as to a God to hear the letters of his appointed officers read and expounded to receive a meal at which they believed Christ himself presided over. Whatever happened, it is certain that the disciples believed that they had seen Jesus alive and were beginning to worship him as Messiah. And finally, number seven, Jesus' enemies never presented his body. Now, this, this, this is arguably the clincher, okay, if you're tracking with me so far. So the tomb's empty. Things are starting to happen. A movement that should have fizzled out well within the first century is now beginning to spread. Reports that Jesus is alive. Eyewitness testimony is getting around. Because something's actually gone down. Events have transpired. Now, if I was a non-believer in the first century, I'd be like, guys, let's get the body. Someone please just get the body. You present the body, end of story. Jesus' enemies never presented his body. Although unable to locate Jesus dead or alive, the very fact that Jewish and Roman leaders sought alternative explanations for the resurrection, this demonstrates that the empty tomb was a historically viable reality. After all, it would have been quite a straightforward matter to put an abrupt halt to the spread of the gospel if the authorities would have simply presented a dead body. There was no body to present, so they had to begin to propagate other alternatives. Are you aware of some of the other alternatives? Well, I mentioned the swoon theory. Perhaps he, perhaps he just be passed out for a few days. That's, that's, no. No one just passes out from Roman crucifixion and then chills out in a tomb for three days without food and water and then decides to walk to India. Sorry. It's a little personal. It was, a, it was, a, it was quite a debate. <laughs> don't, don't, don't find it. I, I lost the debate. I'll just say that. I'm like, dude, this guy's running circles around me. <clears throat> but I got to preach the gospel to a whole room full of, of wonderful uh, Muslims who are really inquiring. Um, mass hallucination? You perhaps have heard of that one, right? Uh, Possible, possible to be fair. Very, very unlikely on that scale, on that scale. 
Um, how about legend? Now, this one, I pr- I'll be, to be fair, I find the most um, difficult to get over. Uh, the idea that, okay, well, something happened to be sure, that the tomb was empty, and uh, no one really knew why. Uh, perhaps we could appeal to mystery, and, but somehow the word got out that, that he was alive because that was the idea. Maybe it was a metaphor. Maybe it was meant to be, to, to be understood as spiritual. And so, so a legend began to sort of get off the ground. The problem with that theory, though, is that the writings of the New Testament began to circulate like within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Legends take a little bit longer than that. And the manuscripts that we have to back that up go back to within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses themselves. Do you get what I'm saying? It, It would work if like the oldest manuscripts that we had were like maybe 500 years later. Okay, sure, that, that's enough time for a legend to develop. But the historical records that we have describing the events, most of them all date back to the first century. These are not the writings of legend. This is, this is good history. And of course, the third and probably most popular alternative solution to the empty tomb problem is the disciples just made it up. They were liars. They were cult leaders, and they decided they wanted to be in a movement, and so they just began to lie. Um, And that really doesn't make any sense either. I love what N.T. Wright says, if your favorite Messiah got himself crucified, and you either went home or else you got yourself a new Messiah. But the idea of stealing Jesus's corpse and saying that God had raised him from the dead is hardly one that would have entered the minds of the disciples, who in the end all gave their lives, their belief that in fact, Jesus, the Messiah, did come back from the dead, just as he said he would. Now, what does all this have to do with anything? Some of you are like, oh my gosh, this is painfully boring. Get, get on, okay. But this is important. This is important. I'm trying to build a case here. What does all this mean? If we can agree that the tomb was empty, that means it begs the question, then what actually happened? What actually happens? This is where um, historians will say, uh, over the centuries, they've argued that inference to the best explanation This is a method of um, determining historicity of an event. Inference to the best explanation simply keeps pointing us back to the resurrection despite the fact that people don't typically come back to life after dying. Okay, I I think we should concede that. It's very, very difficult to believe. Okay, that's true. But what could possibly be a better explanation of the facts than the resurrection of Jesus itself? What if it's true? 
What if it's actually true? I believe it is. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Partly because if you actually apply your mind to it, if you read the stuff, pick up a couple of books, the argument is compelling. The evidence is overwhelming. You get to a point where if you're honest, like if you're an honest seeker, looking for the truth, digging into the history, considering the arguments, if you go long enough, if you dig deep enough, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus in light of the events, it's, it's really compelling. Like crazy to believe, but there isn't a better explanation. I believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and he did exactly what he said was going to happen. He went to the cross to suffer and die for my sins and yours, for the sins of the world, to satisfy the justice of God that we might receive mercy and an invitation to be adopted back into the family of our heavenly father. And he came back from the dead validating everything that he said would happen. Because if he didn't come back from the dead, well, I don't know. Anyone can say they're the savior of the world and go die a martyr's death. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to go conquer death. And you'll know it's true when I come back to life. What are the implications of that? What are the implications? Now I want to talk to your heart for a second. Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, and the other disciple. They all arrive. They're all looking at the same situation. It's a powerful situation. Peter, it would seem he doesn't believe, at least not yet. You might recall that Peter, he, he was the one who denied Christ. He'd swore, I'll never, ever, ever bail on you, Jesus, no matter what happens. And I believe he believed it. I mean, he was the one, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he had a, a sword or like a fisherman's knife, and he went after the, the soldier or the, the high priest assistant or whoever it was, tried to slice the dude's ear off. He was, he was probably going for the neck. And this was Peter. Not super cool, but he was, he was a believer, to be sure. And he told Jesus, I'll never deny you. And then something happened. Confronted by a little servant girl, it says, hey, you're, you're with them, aren't you? You sound like a Galilean. You're with Jesus, aren't you? No, I'm not. And he denies Christ exactly three times, nonetheless. And you can only imagine what he must have been feeling when he peered into that empty tomb. Like this intense mixture of like, oh my gosh, is he alive? And oh my gosh, what have I done? 
the, the shame. You, you talk about theological or philosophical assumptions. I believe there is, if you've considered the data, if you've done the research as it were, you looked at the history, consider the facts, and you still refuse to take a step further, you say, I don't know. I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And of course, we'll do things like, well, according to science, pull the, that's the science card. I love arguing with my wife because she's way smarter than me. And if she ever starts to like beat me in the debate, I'll just say, well, according to science, done. That's all, that's, that's for free. According to science, sorry. And that's dumb. But there's, um, we have, there's reasons. There's reasons why we refuse to believe. John, the disciple, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, he just had to see the empty burial clothes. It's almost as if he always believed. And it just, he's like, yep, that's it. I knew it. I knew it. He is the Messiah. He conquered death. Where is he? Let's go tell everyone. But Mary, Mary, let, let's, let's go back to our passage. We need to finish this. Mary. But Mary, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She saw Jesus. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. That's that's. Strange. Now you can read the commentaries and some will say, oh, well, it's probably because it was still, still dark out, super early morning. She had been sobbing. That, that, that makes sense, possibly. I, I think John is, is wanting us to, the authors is wanting to say something else about that. She saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. They were in a garden. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I'll deal with the body. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Stop there. Mary, she had a deeply personal moment with Jesus. The miracle of the resurrection is that it gives us hope. It gives us hope. 
hope in the face of pain and loss. That's where Mary was at. Sobbing, weeping, couldn't leave the empty tomb. Men had gone home. She couldn't leave. Where was she going to go? Mary, Mary Magdalene, she was the one, the Gospels say, that had been uh, possessed by seven demons. That's nuts. Not just one, seven. Completely filled, oppressed, controlled, under the weight and control of darkness. Satan. God only knows. Like, how, do you, how does one end up like there? In the first century, I think, I think it's probably common knowledge, okay, radically patriarchal society, women were, they, they weren't worth much. Now, if you were a woman possessed by seven demons, unclean, without value, untouchable, unwanted, worthless in the eyes of society. She meets Jesus, and Jesus gives her her life back. He restores her dignity. He sees what's going on inside of her. He knows how she got there. And in a moment, he looks at her, and he tells those demons to get out. She's mine. I love her. She gives and she gets her life back. Now Jesus is dead. Where's she gonna go? She, she has nothing. The one man who actually showed her real love, who treated her as if she was worth everything, worth dying for, is now gone. The miracle of resurrection is that there is hope in the face of pain and loss. But here's the real miracle. It's not just an abstract hope. Hope is like an idea. Hope is a feeling. Hope is a religious sentiment or some sort of doctrinal slogan that maybe we might recite to ourselves when we need a little, little spiritual boost in life. It's not just a cognitive abstraction, hope, this sort of concept that I can hold on to and, and, and I, you know, maybe it'll just kind of help me in life. If it works for you, cool. That's, that's not the hope of the resurrection. The true miracle of the resurrection is that Jesus not only conquered death, but he came back. He not only gave us hope, but he gave us hope in the most personal, intimate fashion. You know how we often say, oh, so-and-so is no longer with us because they've, they've passed, they've died? Jesus died and came back. It's not just an idea. In that moment, Mary didn't need an idea. She needed more than just an empty tomb. She needed her savior. She needed God with us. It's a deeply personal hope. Jesus comes near to the individual and he calls us by name.
this hope, it's an anchor for our souls. It's knowing that God didn't conquer death and then just give us a quick wave goodbye as he passed over to the other side. Good luck, I'll be in heaven 2,000 years later. It's like, okay, this is, this is a little difficult to keep up. It's knowing that there is no shadow too dark, no loss too painful, no relationship too broken, no regret too shameful. You do not ever have to stop hoping because the mighty one has conquered death and he now walks with us. It's not just an idea. It's that he's conquered death and come back. The miracle of the resurrection is that Jesus is alive and Jesus is with us in the deepest, most personal way. This is a powerful situation, as someone once said. It's an awesome situation. Do you believe it? Eight days later, Jesus stood among his disciples once again. You might recall the story of Thomas, good old doubting Thomas. He said to the other disciples, who at this point had all seen Jesus, it was like everyone was at the meeting except for Thomas. That's not the meeting you want to miss. And they're telling him, we've seen him. He's alive. And you, you remember how he actually said it, like plainly, that he was going to suffer and die and then come back from the dead. And we all thought that was just some sort of like weird spiritual metaphor. He's back. We had a meal with him. We ate fish. It was the craziest thing. And Thomas says, I refuse to believe unless I can see him and touch him. I want to put my finger where I saw that soldier stick the spear in his side. It's a little morbid. But it said that he refused to believe. Eight days later, they're all together, and Jesus appears. It says the doors were locked. They were clearly in hiding. And it says they were together, and Jesus simply appeared, and he said, peace. And he took Thomas's hand and he said, go ahead, feel me. It's real. I'm not a ghost. This is not a spiritual metaphor. I'm alive and I'm here now. And he believed. And then Jesus said, blessed is the one who hasn't seen and believes anyway. And this is why these words were written. So that we can believe as well. Do you Believe that Jesus is who he said he is. There is no question that we all need forgiveness. There is no question that we're all going to die. For sure that's happening. Statistically guaranteed. And there is no question that when we cross over, we will stand before our maker. And we will have to give an account for the life that we've been given, whether we spent it on ourselves or whether we spent it in relationship with our God, in honor of who he is and the gift of life that he has given us. Our breath is on loan. 
There is no doubt we will stand before our maker. You can choose to believe it or not. But where does your hope come from? As you navigate through life and it's ups and downs and maybe you're in a place right now you're like, my life is sweet. It's good. I love it. I've got a date next weekend. Whatever. (laughs) I got paid. Sweet. Great. Awesome. Enjoy that. But what about the moments when you're looking around for what, what, how am I going to get through this? And can I just be, can I just say it? In my experience, the hardest, darkest, hopeless challenges in life seem to have something to do with our relationships. It's, it's powerful stuff. Who do I turn to when that person who I love, who I thought loved me. Who do I look to when that relationship seems broken beyond repair? And my soul, it feels like my soul is beginning to float out into space. It's like, who am I? What's going on? Or perhaps it's when you face death. I reckon when this was written, that was a very real thing. People are like, I'm 30, I could be dying any time now. Not a super high uh, expectancy there. Where's your source of hope? What's your anchor? Who do you look to? Is your hope a concept that you're told you're meant to believe because you're Christian? Not a bad start, but that's, that's not the end. The miracle of Resurrection Sunday is that not only does Jesus give us hope, but he is hope with us. He meets us in our pain, and he calls us by name. Mary, it's me. I'm here. Not only is the tomb empty, but I'm with you now. I'll say this and then we must close. Can I invite the worship team to come up, please? Last night, I was putting the kids to bed and Evie was brushing her teeth, so I was killing some time in the hallway. And I could hear Isaac and Judah talking to each other. They were having a slumber party. Um, that means they were like, they were both in Isaac's top bunk, cuddling and whatnot. And so I'm listening, they're chatting about something. And this is what Isaac said <clears throat> He said, Judah, look. You got to follow Jesus. I'm telling you, you got to follow Jesus. He's the VIP. <laughs> I'm not making this up. You got to follow Jesus. He's the VIP. He's the servant. He's the one who's always there to help you. I'm like, 
Now that is good theology right there. <laughs> you got to follow Jesus. Don't just, don't just mentally ascend to the concept of Christ. Consider the history. Weigh, weigh up the facts. Check it out. Research it. Use your head. And then check out your heart. Where does your hope come from? Are you walking with him? Is he the VIP in your life? Because he can be. You can know that anchor. You can know his strength in your weakness. You can experience walking with him when everything gets dark. But you gotta make a choice. Gotta make a choice. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.